Okay, so this afternoon we're going to build on the back of last week where we were looking at a New Testament vision for church. This was our conclusion from last week, hopefully it will come up on the screen, that the church is a worldwide community of Jesus followers surrendered to the Lordship of Christ through which God's purposes for the world are to be realised. If that's the why, then today we're going to look at the how. How do we inhabit a moment like this? How do we inhabit a moment of uncertainty? And the answer is, we inhabit a moment of uncertainty with conviction. This is a moment for the church to rise up and live with conviction. One of my really good friends many years ago got into train spotting. He basically, he was like 12, 13 years old at the time, walking the streets of Nottingham with a mate and a guy whizzed past on a motorbike shouting, Kudos in the Vic! Kudos in the Vic! Kudos in the Vic! And my mate looked to his friend and was like, what the heck is that? And they're like, Let's find out. And they start sprinting after this guy on a bike. And like they're just charging after him. They eventually find him jumping off his bike, parking up and running into the Victoria station in Nottingham. They're like, Vic must be Victoria. What's Gudu? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. They run in. They find this guy. He's taking a bag off his back. He's opening up the bag. He's getting out a book. And they say, look, you said Kudu's in the Vic. What, what does that even mean? It's like, Kudu is a train and it's never been in the Vic before. Like, this is an amazing moment. So I've got this book and I find Kudu and I underline it because Kudu is in the Vic. And the kids are like, that's amazing. Kudu's in the Vic. Where, where do we get the book? So there's a shop in Nottingham. If you, if you go and get it, you can get your own book. And then you start underlining the trains that come into the station. They're like... Wow. They become train spotters. They become train spotters. You've often wondered, how do actually people become train spotters? Now, do you think they would have become train spotters if the guy on the bike had just sort of like motored on past saying, Kudu's in the Vic, guys. Kudu's in the Vic. But he was screaming with conviction, Kudu's in the Vic! Kudu's in the Vic! If you want to inhabit a moment of uncertainty in a way that impacts the world, inhabit this moment with conviction. So we're going to look at seven convictions that we seek to live by as a church family at KXC. There's seven of them that can help you gauge how long this talk is going to be. They all begin with C, just to warn you, the first couple are going to be a little bit longer and then we are going to whiz through, just because I know some of you will be panicking. Um, so conviction number one, we want to be courageous. We want to be faithful to the Scriptures. To be faithful to the Scriptures in this cultural moment requires requires courage. Agree? To be faithful to the Scriptures in a moment like this requires courage. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, if holiness matters, the Scriptures matter because they are guide towards holy living. But more than that, Paul says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every Every good work, holiness and mission, the scriptures are critical. Whenever we open up the scriptures, there are these two core ingredients. There is the Spirit of God and there is the Word of God. Paul says all scripture is God 
breathed. The breath of God is the Spirit of God. So whenever you open up your Scriptures, whether it's first thing in the morning or before you go to bed, you might think you're just reading text, but there's something deeper than that going on. The Spirit of God is interacting with the Word of God. And if you've read your Bibles, you know how the story opens in Genesis 1 and 2. God speaks and creation comes into existence. He says, let there be light and there is light. And whilst God is speaking, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, bringing order to the chaos. When you open up your Scriptures, you need to know the Word of God is interacting with the Spirit of God and there will always be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Why do you think it's such a battle to open up the Scriptures? We have an enemy who's like, no, no, don't, don't bother reading. Treat yourself to a lie-in. Don't bother reading the text. Why is there such a battle? Because when you open up the Scriptures, there will be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Listen to these words. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Our equivalent would be, How I love social media. I, I chew on it all day long, right? The psalmist is basically saying, I, I just feed on Scripture. I meditate on it. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light to my path. These are dark days, days of deep uncertainty. Don't you need a light? Aren't there moments where you like when it comes to my career, big decisions regarding the family? I, I, I need a light. The Scriptures, the words of God are a lamp for our feet, but they're more than just a lamp. They're more than just a lamp. They're also a lens so that we can see the world how God sees the world. Now, a number of years ago, my father-in-law tragically passed away. Very suddenly, on holiday in Wales, he went for a walk um, and was found dead by a farmer. His um, heart had, you know, had had a heart attack. Um, and it was this moment of like total trauma. The whole family descended down to sort of like the southern western bit of Wales. And we spent a few days days together in that moment. And I noticed my brother-in-law was doing something strange. He decided to take his dad's glasses, Nick's glasses, and just wear them like all the time. And I don't know if you've tried wearing somebody else's glasses, right? But if there's a different prescription they have, it's just odd wearing somebody else's glasses. You can't really see very clearly. So I said to my brother-in-law, I don't, I don't get it. How come you're constantly wearing Nick's glasses? And this was his response. He said, I just want to see the world as my dad saw the world. Just want to see the world as my dad saw the world, Right? When we read scripture, there's an invitation to see the world through the lens of our Father. That's an extraordinary invitation. If you're on a search for meaning, how about seeing the world through the lens of its maker? So let's just talk about worldviews and how worldviews shape perceptions. So we're going to do a gear change from theology to neuro-linguistic programming. Um, this is basically how we perceive reality. So 
around us, this is according to the theory, there are over 3 billion bits of data. Your mind is processing a huge amount right now. You're aware of the person on your left, the person on your right, the person behind you who's breathing slightly heavily, that's a bit odd. The person in front of you, you're aware of what's going on in Hanley Road. You might hear the kids next door. You're aware of other sounds and sights. It's like bombarding your senses. You're aware of my voice, what I look like. Some of you are thinking, has Pete lost a little bit of weight during the last few months? Thank you so much for observing that. Like, There's so much that we are processing, 3 billion bits of data, it's too much. So how do we process the data? Well, firstly, it goes through our senses, what we can taste, touch, feel, smell, hear. So all of this data comes into the brain. It goes through these senses and then it goes through certain filters. And the three big filters are that we generalize, we delete, we distort. And all of this, by the way, is happening in nanoseconds. Generalize, delete distort, generalize, delete, distort. Let me give you an example or two. So if you've been bitten by a dog and you're walking to work in the morning, you've made a generalization probably that dogs are dangerous. You will notice every single dog on your way to work, right? You've made that generalization. If you've not been bitten by a dog, you're only going to notice the really cute dogs and the really aggressive dogs and pretty much every other dog you're just going to delete. Honestly, you you won't even observe what's happening around you because it isn't interesting to you. So we generalize all the time, we delete, and then we distort data. We manipulate the data to create the outcome that we want. So here's an example. Imagine you're walking through your local park at midday and you hear what sounds like a gunshot, but no one wants to hear a gunshot in their local park at midday. So you manipulate the data. You're like, maybe it's fireworks. You know, in the middle of summer, in the middle of the day, that's an odd thing to do, but summer can be quite odd. It must be fireworks. How delightful that there's fireworks um, in the park, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day. Um, all of this stuff is happening constantly and it's happening in nanoseconds. So the data comes in through the senses, we generalize, delete, we distort, um, and we narrow it down to 100 bits of data. How crazy is that? Three billion narrowed down to 100 bits of data. That's why at a crime scene, the police want multiple eyewitnesses. You may have thought that you took it all in, but there was so much you didn't take in. And if they have multiple eyewitnesses, all with their perception of reality, they can build a bigger and clearer picture of what actually happened, right? The point is we do this with scripture all the time. We do this with scripture all the time. We come to the text with a pre-existing worldview. Most of us are more shaped by the narratives that surround us than the scriptures themselves. Like the air we breathe, the waters we swim in culturally, it's secular humanism. And it's developed these filters through which we interpret the data. So what often happens is we come to the text and as we begin to read it, we generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. Our generalizations are normally based on the worldview that we've brought to the text. And then we find things, oh, don't like that. Delete that. Oh, that's a tricky passage about money. Delete that. Oh, I don't really understand. Delete that. And then we distort things. Surely it cannot mean this. It must mean X. And we end up with our perceived biblical reality that can often be a long way from biblical reality itself. 
right? So listen to these words. This is the Apostle Paul. He said, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come, and, and this might sound familiar, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Like, can you see how that's happening right now that we're bringing our pre-existing worldviews to the text and we're ending up with interpretations that might well be a long way from what the intended authors meant, uh, the original authors meant. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is to submit to the Scriptures. Just think of the word, by the way, submission. It means mission under. In other words, there's a mission from God um, and we submit to his will, his ways as revealed in Scripture. So, so the goal when we come to Scriptures is to say, God, I, I'm not coming here just with a pre-existing worldview to get what I want from the text. I want to sit under your vision for what it means to be human. I want to submit to your Scriptures. Lord, would you give me a worldview? Like I, I come in humility. Like, would you create a worldview? Because I want some lenses that enable me to see the world as you see the world through the lenses of love. It is so important at a moment like this that we take the Scriptures seriously, that we submit to the Scriptures. So that's the first conviction. It's to be faithful to the Scriptures. Second conviction is we want to be contextual. We want to thoughtfully engage with the surrounding culture, thoughtfully engage with secular culture. Now, if you're in the room and under the age of 40, which is probably most of the room, um, you've been trained to deconstruct. Like you've been trained to deconstruct things around you. It's kind of like postmodern thinking. You hear, you observe, you deconstruct it, right? Now, if we're going to be masters of deconstruction, which we really are, we've got to make sure we're deconstructing the right stuff. So if you rewind 10, 15, 20 years, there was a movement in the church that created a lot of excitement, emerging church or emergent. And there were some beautiful things that came from the emerging church movement. But you know, one of the challenges with the movement is everyone was deconstructing church and everyone was deconstructing faith. So many of my friends, fast forward 10, 15 years, they've given up on church and they've given up on God. Like what they should have been doing is deconstructing the secular culture that surrounds them. Like how is this not in alignment with the will of God, the purposes of God, but rather in a moment of boredom, they began to deconstruct their faith and deconstruct church. There's a danger of it happening again on our watch. You know, we've got to make sure that if we're going to be masters of deconstruction, we deconstruct the right stuff. So let me just begin to sort of, you know, articulate a vision of, of what the Scriptures are, the story of Scriptures, and how it interacts with the, the narratives that surround us. So if you've been a KXC for any length of time, you'll have seen this diagram, you'll think about this diagram, you'll dream about this diagram when you go to sleep. It's the story of creation, moving to decreation, which is created order, unraveling through sin, and then a journey towards recreation, which is God on a mission to restore, renew, redeem all things through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? So, so this is the story of God revealed in Scripture. Now, what happened during the Enlightenment 
essentially a group of thinkers emerged that said, look, we really love the shape of this story, the Judeo-Christian story. We love that it has a beginning and it has an end. It has a linear view of time. We love that it has this progress towards perfection, towards this utopian vision. So we love the story. What we detest about the story is Christ being at the centre. Like we don't want Christ at the centre. We want to be at the centre of the story. We want to be masters of our own destiny. We like the shape because it accounts for the brokenness we see around us. It gives us a vision of progressing towards perfection. But we've got to tweak the story. So this is what basically happened. We put ourselves front and centre in the narrative. And then listen to the language that began to be used to articulate the worldview of the Enlightenment era. Key terminology, renaissance, right? That's biblical language. Renaissance literally means rebirth. That's the language the Christians were using when we came to faith, like we were born again in Christ. Like we, we, we transitioned from darkness to light. We had that read early in the prophetic words from Peter. Like we, we've journeyed from darkness to light. They basically took that language and they articulated this moment because of religion. We've ended up in the dark ages. What we long for is light. What we need is rebirth. But we want to get rid of Jesus from the, the centre of the story. We want to be rebirthed in and through our own endeavours, right? We want to be God. That's essentially secularism. But what's happened now, and you see this all around us, some of the big debates, some of the big issues of our time, as we engage with those issues, we hear some of the narratives and we hear some of the arguments. It's like, do you know what? That that kind of sounds Christian. It kind of looks Christian. Like all this language about freedom and justice and liberty, the question we should always be asking, is Jesus at the centre? If he's not, it's not Christianity, right? They basically took Christianity, extracted Christ, and essentially what we're left with is, is the best that we can come up with to progress towards a utopian vision, Listen to what Jesus said. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In other words, a lot of these narratives, they will look Christian, they will sound Christian, but if Christ isn't at the centre, they are not Christianity, right? So we need to be you know, certain that we are deconstructing the right things. And what are we to reconstruct? Because this is a moment for reconstruction. We are to reconstruct with the gospel message itself. And the gospel message itself is that Jesus has fulfilled this narrative through his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is the capstone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation on which we build. And if we want to see a resurgence in the surrounding culture, it starts with the proclamation of the gospel. That's what followers of Jesus have believed through the ages. If we're going to see revival, if we're going to see a spiritual awakening, it doesn't begin with our hard work. It begins with the proclamation of the gospel.
So we as a church, we believe in engaging with the stories, the narratives that surround us, and we believe we shift culture by creating the culture of the kingdom of God. Here's conviction number three, contemplative. We want to develop practices of counter-formation. We live in a city that is unbelievable at forming people into a certain type of person. Like global cities are incredible at formation. And right now, let's just embrace with humility that the secular culture around us has done a better job of discipling people than the church. Um, And let me try and articulate at least one of the reasons why. And I think it's because the church has been using an operating system that doesn't work in our cultural moment. We've basically been using an enlightenment operating system in a postmodern age. So essentially, enlightenment, we've kind of unpacked it a little bit. But the the big idea is that we are the centers of the universe and reason gets elevated above all other faculties. So I think, therefore I am, was one of the big statements of that era. Now, if you believe that what it means to be human is that we're ultimately rational beings, how do we experience transformation and behavior? And the answer is we need to think differently. If we can just give people really good things Theology, it will transform their behavior. If people just have the right doctrine, it will result in great living. And the reality that isn't the case, isn't always the case. Um, think about the Gospels. Who has the best theology, the highest Christology in the Gospel narratives? And the answer is it's the demons. It's the demons that declare, Jesus, we know who you are. They have good Christology, good theology, but they refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Just having the right theology isn't enough. We need more than just right theology. What we need is if you go back in time before the Enlightenment, you end up with this brilliant um, North African theologian called Augustine who basically said, yes, we're rational beings. Yes, we're believing beings, but more than that, we're desiring beings. And what happens is we move in the direction of our desires. Now, advertising operates according to this principle, right? So when Apple sort of advertise their new products, they don't give you all of the details as to why their phones are better than the Google phone or the whatever Android version or better than the Samsung. They don't say, here's the processes inside, you know, this phone. They basically market something. You're like, oh, I desire it. That would make me feel great about life. It would comfort me. Retail therapy is a thing that would bring great comfort. I would be cool if I had that product, right? It grabs your desires and we move in the direction of our desires, right? Now, again, throughout the ages Christians have been drawing people into spiritual practices. This was Augustine's big idea that we retrain our desires, we redirect our desires towards Jesus, towards the kingdom through habits, through spiritual practices. These are embodied practices. They involve the mind, the heart, your entire being, fasting. fasting. It's something physical, meditating, being still. There's something bodily going on in that moment, like practices of Scripture 
scripture reading and prayer and the list goes on. So what happens when you have these practices in place, we develop, we put on the nature of Christ. As we imitate Christ and we practice, practice, practice the things of God, the character of Christ, the practices of Christ, they become second nature to us. It happens very slowly, painfully slowly, but over time it does happen. Right? It's called sanctification. We become like the one we worship. So over the coming weeks and months, you're going to hear us talk a fair bit about pattern, which is a vehicle we've developed at KXC to help us engage in this process of spiritual formation, where people get into threes and fours and they go on a, a journey of four parts, story, vision, pattern, contend. You share your story. How have you become the person you are now? What's your vision moving forward? What are the practices you need to help point your desires in the direction of the kingdom? And how as mates can we contend? for God to be at work in your life. Part of that is developing a rule of life. Now, if you're interested, head to the website, kxc.org.uk forward slash pattern or pattern.org.uk. We as a church, this is our conviction in a city like London, our spiritual formation has to have deep intentionality to it. It's not gonna happen just passively. If I rock up once a week on a Sunday, it will just happen by osmosis. There's got to be deep intentionality about it. Fourth conviction is to be a people marked out by compassion. Um, we regularly say this, that the word compassion, compound word, com meaning with, passion meaning to suffer. If you're passionate about something, what that really means is you believe in it so much you would willingly suffer for the cause. Right? So to be a compassionate church means we willingly suffer with the most vulnerable in society, the most vulnerable in our communities. To be a church that reflects our maker, we are to be marked out by compassion. Listen to these words. This is Exodus 34. Now, this is a key text, by the way. This is the most quoted bit of Scripture by Scripture, right? So, so many different authors through the Scriptures go back to this verse as like a key verse for understanding the character and nature of God, right? This is the moment, Mount Sinai, where God reveals His name and therefore His character to Moses. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed His name, the Lord. And He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, this is his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now just, just notice that, I've underlined it in the gold, right? When God reveals his name and his nature, the first phrase we have to articulate his essence is that he's the compassionate God that he suffers with his people. We see this in Jesus. God takes on human flesh to live amongst us. Like if we are to be Christ-like, the hands and feet of Christ in the world, where should we be found? Amongst the broken, amongst the most vulnerable. So listen to this then. Fast forward to Colossians chapter three. This is the apostle Paul. He's basically encouraging the church to put on the nature of Christ, right? And he says there's a new wardrobe that goes with our new identity. And when he, when he offers the new wardrobe, he says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Here's the new wardrobe. You can imagine the excitement growing. Okay, here's the new wardrobe. First piece of clothing, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, the list goes on. First piece of clothing 
is compassion. Like in this new identity that you have, living out your faith in the world, you are to be marked out by compassion. We've just invested in this new building, King's House. It'll be ready in January. And there are a number of things that we are so excited about this building. The vision for it is for it to be a house of prayer and presence, like just constant prayer and worship happening in this place, a house of hospitality and healing, a house of mercy and justice, a house of creativity and renewal, right? But of all of those things, I'm excited about all of those things, but this is my prayer and my deep longing that what this building is best known for in the area is a place of mercy and justice, a place of compassion, where the most broken, the most hurting think that's home. I'm going to be welcomed there. I'm going to experience love there. For that to be part of the story of this building, we need to be marked out by compassion. So that's our conviction. This season requires us to live with deep compassion. Um, Conviction number five, communal. Category-defying relationships. Now, think of this then, Jesus. Basically, does something extraordinary at the cross that Paul then begins to articulate to the church in Ephesus. He says, he himself is is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's basically saying, like around us, there's all sorts of division. And top of the list in that culture was the division between Jews and Gentiles. Now, so many of these dividing walls, they weren't just abstract dividing walls. They were actual walls that existed in the temple in Jerusalem. So if you visited the the temple in Jerusalem, there would be a court of Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you could go no further into the inner courts. There was a court for women, but then the women could go no further. All of these walls that the Jewish community were incredibly familiar with. And Paul is basically saying Jesus has destroyed the old temple. He's developing a new temple and the dividing walls of hostility, they've been broken down. Now the conclusion then, Galatians 3, Paul says to a different church in Galatia, he says, because of this, the breaking down of the dividing walls, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Like, if you want to know what it means to be the church, we should be marked out by unity, a sense of oneness. You know, the final prayer of Jesus before he ascends to the Father, this is the prayer that Jesus is still praying now from the right hand of the Father, is that they might be one as you and I, Father, are one. That's my deepest longing as I say goodbye. May they be one as we are one. Now, right now, because of identity politics and and the way we do life, there are dividing walls being erected all the time, separating the haves and the have-nots, the ours and the are-nots. Everywhere there are dividing walls. It should never be that way in the church. Jesus breaks the dividing walls of hostility. So we should be the kind of community that that people struggle to make sense of because you don't see it anywhere else on the planet. 
That's what it means to be the church. Sixth conviction, coming into land, don't worry, is a charismatic community moving in the power of the Spirit. What does the prophet say? He says, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. In other words, how are we going to live out these convictions? And it's not just human endeavor, right? It's not your might, your power. It's by the Spirit, says the Lord. So we need to constantly be opening ourselves to the Spirit of Jesus. Think about Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. The presence of God was amongst them. The power of God was amongst them. There were signs and wonders. People speaking in tongues, physical healings, like things were kicking off. Onlookers were like, these guys must be drunk because it's like very strange what's happening around us. And then Peter begins to articulate, well, it's because the Spirit of God and the power of God is being poured out upon the followers of Jesus. John Wimber, the church theologian pastor, he had this phrase, he said, the way in is the way on. And that's a beautiful description of that first moment in the church. Like the way it began is the way it's meant to continue. Signs and wonders should be normative, right? We should be open to the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. Like to be charismatic is to be fully, fully biblical because we are encouraged to operate and practice these spiritual gifts in our community. Final one then is we have this conviction that this is a time for contending. We are contending for a spiritual awakening at this time. Um, now, contending language sounds hardcore. We're all knackered, let's be honest. We're all knackered. Someone's saying this is time to contend. You're like, really? Like, really? Well, let me just articulate what I think contending looks like. I think contending looks like deep trust in God when we work and wrestling with God when we pray. Right? So this is a famous quote. It's attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Pray like it depends on God, work like it depends on you. Pray like it depends on God, work like it depends on you. I've heard that quote so many times over the last 20, 30 years, right? Like we need to like pray and we need to work like it depends on us. Um, if you read um, scholars of Ignatian spirituality, they will highlight you won't find that quote anywhere in his works. Like nowhere in his works. In fact, most scholars of Ignatian spirituality say basically that's the complete opposite of what Ignatius actually believed. If, if there was a quote, which there isn't in his work, it would be something like this, pray like it depends on you and work like it depends on God. The way a lot of us go about our working, it basically looks like functional atheism, that we don't actually trust God. So we are going to like just give it everything and we're going to make it happen in our own strength. Just in case God doesn't show up, don't really think he will. So I'm going to make it rain. And, and we work with this frenetic activity that, that leads towards exhaustion. Ignatius would say, when you work, work lightly. Because Jesus said, if you follow me, the burden should feel light. It should feel easy. It should feel joyful. Work in such a way that it brings you pleasure, not in a way that destroys you and burns you out. Work in such a way that people see and think, gosh, he must really trust in God. She must really depend on God. And yet when it comes to prayer, that, that's when you should see the church on its knees wrestling for breakthrough, right? 
When we're working, there should be a lightness, an absence of striving. When we're praying, we should be knocking on the door of heaven. So these are the convictions that we want to inhabit in this current season. Courageous, contextual, contemplative, compassionate, compassionate, communal, charismatic, and contending.